Let's turn up your gain a little. Yeah, bit. it's a rhombus. Me, it's the button's flashing. Is it supposed to be flashing? No, flashing no. means oh. it's muted. Yeah. That's why. There you go. In your eyes, <laughs> I am wow. complete. Your eyes. Okay. That's the intro. <laughs> yep. Ugh. All right. An intro for diamond. <laughs> no, it should be. I like diamonds. I like dollars. I like Shannon. I like sun. Isn't that way? A million dollar bills. All right. <clears throat> Welcome to another episode of Gem Junkies. I'm Brecken. And I'm Jonathan. And today... We are going to talk about... Wait for it. This is going to be shocking to everybody because everyone knows how much we love color. Diamonds. Diamonds. Yeah. April's birthstone. Yes. And we figure we're 30-some episodes in, so it's about time that the it's uh, about time we number talk about... one selling gemstone <laughs> in the world... the most important gemstone. Diamond. Yeah. Yeah. I have a confession to make. I ate your apple fritter from last Friday. What? I'm joking. I like diamonds. <laughs> we got donuts last Friday, and Jonathan's like, where's my apple fritter? And you're now confessing. Maybe I ate it. I didn't get a maple bar. They ate all my maple bars. And there was only one apple fritter? And I might have eaten it. Not the blueberry. No. You guys had donuts last week? Yeah, sorry. That's what you get for going on vacation. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. If you are ever in Pocatello, the best donut place in the whole world is called Amazing Glaze. And they are awesome. And they make their donuts with real Idaho potatoes. Yep. So anyway, it's kind of a, a thing we do around here. We were doing it a little too often. Remember? Well, like every sometimes sometimes we were doing it two times a week and I was like we've got to cut this donut habit back and so we stopped doing it for a little while we're bringing it back now once a week is once good. once a week or every other week or once a month or something so something we all don't go into sugar comas I would cheat sugar for those donuts <laughs> and the cookie from a cookie place dude that thing did put me in a, a sugar coma yeah <laughs> As well as the girls. As well as the girls, their eyes were dilated. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Jonathan and I are recovering from being ill again. Another cold. Another cold. The twinnies have infected us once more with the preschool plague, and our little one has another double ear infection. And we're running on very limited sleep, but I think we're we're thriving. We're not surviving. We're thriving. Thriving. We're <laughs> Who knew I could be this functional on this little sleep? <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about diamonds today. Yes. So the name. Diamonds. Where does it come from? Ancient Greek, meaning unbreakable. Ooh. Yeah, since diamond is the hardest natural substance on earth. Yeah. They've now created a synthetic substance that has a... It's harder, I guess. Oh, okay. Anyway. Anyway. And the earliest references... (laughs) The earliest references of diamond uh, go back to 25,000 to 30,000 BC. Hold up. 
And in India, twenty-five thousand to thirty thousand BC. BC. That's like yeah. that's like caveman times. Yeah, almost. Okay, what were they doing with diamonds back then? I'm playing with rocks. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, yeah. So there's like cave paintings and that kind of stuff that actually like depict a diamond. Yeah, I guess that's what the that's what it says. That's what the thing says. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about a maybe more modern history of diamonds. Okay. So, 4th century BC in India, diamonds were gathered in rivers and streams. Right. Very low quantity, reserved for India's wealthy class. And then Uh, also got traded to everywhere else. Yeah, clearly they made their way to... Rome, Greece, sometime first century AD, Pliny states that diamond is the most valuable of all things in the world. We do like sparkly things, us humans, I'll say that. And then um, 9th century, Aristotle tells a great story about Alexander the Great and how he was the only Westerner to make it to India's diamond mine. Are you ready for this? So ready. Aristotle says that no one except Alexander ever reached the place where the diamond is produced. This is a valley connected with the land Hind, India. The glands cannot penetrate into the greatest depths, and serpents are found there, the like of which no man hath seen, and upon which no man can gaze without dying. Hashtag killer snakes. However, this power endures only as long as the serpents live. For when they die, the power leaves them. In this place, summer rains for six months and winter for the same length of time. Now Alexander ordered that an iron mirror should be brought and placed at the spot where the serpents dwell. When the serpents approached, their glance fell upon their own image in the mirror and caused their death. Hereupon, Alexander wished to bring out the diamonds from the valley, but no one was willing to undertake the descent, because it was so deep. Alexander therefore sought counsel of the wise men, and they told him to throw down a piece of flesh into the valley. This he did. The diamonds became attached to the flesh, and the birds of the air seized the flesh and bore it up out of the valley. Then Alexander ordered his people to pursue the birds and pick up what fell from the flesh. From the flesh? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it does sound super gross. But this... That sounds as gross as the Bozar. No, so this is a... This was a common thing, actually. It, it originates from a Hindu custom of sacrificing cattle when there's a new mine found. And what they do is they sacrifice the cow and they leave a piece of meat as an offering. Okay. And these pieces of meat were soon carried away by birds of prey. Okay. And then you get this legend that the diamonds or gemstones were obtained this way from from the meat flying away from the birds. Crazy. So anyway, there you go, Alexander the Great. You did skip over one small time period, which was the second place the diamonds were ever found, which was in Borneo in 680. Oh, but Just really, to, they weren't that significant, were they? No, was it, it wasn't It wasn't a major source, but it was the second place ever in the world that diamonds were found. Yeah. Borneo. 
So another cool thing is that going along with the snakes and the snakes will kill you just by looking at them. Right. Diamonds and diamond dust were believed to be poisonous. Because of the snakes. Because of the snakes. Because snakes are poisonous. Now, let's think about India for a minute and where the diamonds were found by rivers and streams. Yeah, there's a lot of snakes. Yeah, there's a lot of snakes that could bite you and kill you in India. So it it clearly is a fear-based in fact that there were lots of snakes where the diamonds were found. Um, But they often used diamond dust as a poison, in quote, quotation marks because it really isn't a poison back in medieval times to poison adversaries and stuff like that and if you go back and listen to our halloween episode we talk about it. there's a good story about diamond dust poisoning there you go so there you go go back and listen to that um it, in about the 1400s Diamonds made their way into Venice through various trading routes and became super fashionable with Europe's elite. During this time, another cool, crazy diamond story, because there's a ton of diamond stories, but I thought this one was bizarro. Diamonds were believed that they could have babies. Huh? Yeah, like if you have two diamonds together, they'd multiply. They'd multiply. Yeah, especially, did you have to have a male and a female? Because, right, didn't they think that the brown ones, the brown and yellow ones were male and the white ones were female yeah, or something? Yeah, so the darker the darker tone, tone stones were males and the lighter tone stones were females. So you put a dark and a light together and they had, what kind of baby? I, I don't know. I mean, this, this is clearly not a scientific fact, Jonathan. They didn't really have babies. But, yeah. So there's a story from a book written in 1566 called De Gemis that that tells a story of diamonds multiplying here. Let me get let me find it. Here it is quoted from the book. It was it has recently been related to me by a lady worthy of credence that a noblewoman descended from an illustrious house of Luxembourg had in her possession two diamonds which she had inherited and which possessed or which produced Others in such miraculous wise that whoever examined them at stated intervals judged that they had engendered progeny like themselves. <laughs> I, I can't imagine this is possible. The case of this, if it is permissible to philosophize regarding such a strange matter, would seem to be that the celestial energy in the parent stones first change the surrounding air into water or some similar substance and then condenses and hardens this into a diamond gem. That was their theory of how these diamonds reproduced. They definitely didn't have chemistry 101. Yeah. Now there's an... Because water water versus carbon, I think they're a little different. They're a little different. Now here's another story (coughs) that talks about how diamonds grow. They grow together male and female, and are nourished by the dew of heaven. And they engender commonly and bring forth small children that multiply and grow all year. I have oftentimes tried the experiment that if a man keeps them with a little bit of the host rock and water them with may dew, it has to be may dew often, (laughs) they shall grow every year and the small will grow great. Wow. So, maybe this is a new business for us. <laughs> we can go grow some diamonds. 
I wonder if they were really talking about, you know, yeah. those crystal growing kits that you can get from like National Geographic and stuff. Yeah. Maybe they were really doing that kind of stuff. Um, and then in ancient China, they were actually, diamonds were actually first used um, and were known as a jade cutting knife. So they weren't oh. worn, they weren't actually worn as gems or known as gems or jewelry. They were actually used as a tool. So They're, just like for now. For their industrial purposes. For their industrial purposes. So I thought that was kind of an interesting ancient thing as well. Yeah. So in about the 1800s, demand for diamonds changed, mostly because there was a huge decline in the ruling class. Let's talk about that. Not many kings, queens, that kind of stuff. But there was also more demand and more wealth in America and Europe. And that kind of leads us into what I would call the modern diamond market, which begins in Africa in 1866 with the discovery of diamonds in Kimberley, South Africa. On the banks of the Orange River. By a, a young man. Yeah. How old was he? I, I, I think he was like, yeah, 16 years old. Yeah. Erasmus Jacobs. There you go. Say that again. Erasmus. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Erasmus. <laughs> No, it's your ass. <laughs> so it was, it's now been known as the Eureka Diamond, and it was 21.25 carats. Um, eventually, uh, so it was, it was bought by the governor of Cape Colony at the time, Sir Philip Wodehouse. And he just and he, kind of found it on his dad's farm. Yeah, he just found his, it on the farm. His dad was leasing a plot of land. Yeah. From the De Beers brothers. Yeah. And, uh, Found this pebble that was shiny, gave it to his dad. His dad sold it. Yep, for 500 pounds, which way back then, it was Big a lot of money. Time. It was a lot of money back then. And so eventually, Sir Philip Wodehouse took it to England, and it stayed in England for 100 years. Just hanging out as a piece of rough? Well, it was a rough, and eventually they cut it into a 10.73 carat brownish-yellow cushion. Uh-huh. And then it sold in London... For 5,700 pounds in a bangle, and that was in the 1950s. And then it was, uh, and then De Beers purchased it in 1967 and donated it to South Africa, to the South African people, and it's now on display in the Kimberley Mine Museum. Oh, it's come full circle. Yeah, so it eventually made it home, but it took a hundred, yeah. took exactly a hundred years because it was found, you know, in 1866. It was taken to England in 1867 by Sir Philip Wodehouse, and it took a hundred years to make it back. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? So three years after they found the first, the Eureka diamond, they found an 83.5 carat diamond named the Star of Africa. And this set off what they call the new rush. In 1869, within months, there were 800 diamond mine claims with about two to 3,000 people there mining diamonds. So it really was like a boom town. This became the Kimberley Mines in 1888 when Cecil Rhodes formed the conglomerate, the De Beers Company. And now we all know De Beers. Um, Cecil Rhodes, he 
he got his start. Actually, it's kind of interesting how he got his start. Yeah, selling pumps. Selling water pumps. So he founded the British South Africa Company, and he got his start by selling water pumps to miners during that diamond rush in 1969. And he took the profits from what he made there, and he started buying up small claims. He got a, a small group together, and then he was able to go and secure funding from the Rothschild family to make the De Beers group. Right. And so the thing that I found super interesting was there's nobody named De Beers in the De Beers group. And so I tried to figure out where this name De Beers came from. And it was two Dutch brothers that That owned owned the farm farm where the diamonds were discovered. And the British government kind of forced them to sell off their farm. But as I guess a thank you, they named a mine after them. And once that mine was acquired by Cecil Rhodes... He also named his company after it, the De Beers Group. Right. And so from 1871 to 1915, over 50,000 miners worked the mine, and they yield over 6,000 pounds of rough diamonds. Yeah. So So just as a conversion, if you want to talk about carats, there are 2,268 carats per pound. So that's 13.6 million carats that they took out of that one mine from 1871 to 1915. Quite a bit. But what's interesting is, is that now current annual production in 2017 was 151 million carats. Yeah. So now we can produce more in a year than they produced in what? 40. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that's just due to better mining techniques. Well, and we're mining and mining all over the world. Yeah. I mean, that's this was one mine versus the whole world. Yeah. So the one thing that I found that was super interesting was in about the 1900s, early 1900s, De Beers controlled 90% of the world's rough. So they were in possession and controlled 90% of the world's rough, which meant they set asking price. They, right. They basically they made the market for diamond. And as Jonathan was saying earlier, production increased rapidly. So from 1920s, 3 million uh, carats of rough per year. 1970, 50 million carats of rough per year. 1990, 100 million carats of rough per year. Now 150 million carats of rough per year. Right. But they had to develop and create a way to market and move all that diamond that they were acquiring. And right. that leads us to... Probably the best advertising tagline ever. Right. Well, first they decided that they needed to market it. And yeah. so they really started pushing that um, that diamonds are you know special and beautiful and should be used for engagement. And so diamond for engagement rings didn't really become popular until De Beers started advertising it starting in 1938. And then what you're talking about happened in 1947 when they came up with... A diamond is forever. A diamond is forever, which was rated by the advertising council of council <laughs> um, in 2000 as the best advertising slogan of the century. Yeah, it so, won. Which it, and everyone which knows. It should. It, it's yeah. ingrained, I think, into everyone's head. A diamond is forever. A diamond is forever. Right. We just talked about diamond is forever, 1947. Yeah. yeah. I would say De Beers controlled the diamond industry up until even the late 1990s. 
And then you start seeing more production coming from Russia, Canada, Canada. Australia. Right. And all those other sources that De Beers doesn't have total control on. And so now De Beers is still a huge player in the diamond industry. Don't get me wrong, but there are other sources and, and other people that have their own rough and, and put it out there too. Yep. So now we here, we're here, modern day. People love diamonds. People love diamonds. People love diamonds. So what is a diamond? Carbon. Yeah, that's all it is. Carbon. Mm. Carbon. It is the Highly only, pressurized carbon. Yeah, it's the only gemstone made of a single element. Yeah. Carbon. Yeah. In fact, it is 99.95% carbon with only 0.05% as other trace elements, and those trace elements can affect color or shape. Uh, diamonds formed over 1 billion years ago, and their, their conditions are crazy. So they form at least 100 miles below Earth's crust, although some have been found to form 500 miles down below Earth's crust. And that happens to be where perfect conditions of temperature and pressure exist to form the perfect isometric bond that is needed to make carbon diamond. Diamond. Perfect. And so an isometric bond means that all the atoms are bonded in the same way, creating great strength. So graphite, we all know graphite, is also carbon, but it's not bonded in the same way, so it's really soft. Right. Um, diamond happens to be, like Jonathan said earlier, the hardest natural material known to man. And a diamond can only be scratched by a diamond. Okay, so finding diamonds. How do you find these diamonds? Where are they found? Do you have to dig down super deep in the earth? No, actually. Sometimes were, yes, sometimes, sometimes no. Sometimes no, yeah. For, they were formed deep in the earth's mantle, but they were brought up by extinct volcanoes. Or well, they weren't volcanoes. extinct at the time. They weren't, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't extinct at the time, but they are definitely extinct now because these yeah. volcanic eruptions happened 10 to hundreds of millions yeah. years ago. And they're found in what we call kimberlite pipes. Those yep. are those extinct volcano pipes. And that's one of the interesting things is, is as far as gemstone mining is concerned, they know basically... Where to look for diamonds. Everywhere in the world is basically already plotted where there could be diamonds. Yeah. Which is really interesting compared to all the other gemstones in the world are much more difficult to find. Diamonds, it's like they can fly over, look from satellite, and they can tell where these kimberlite pipes are yeah. and know where diamonds are going to be. It's it's crazy. They look for old earth. Yeah. The oldest earth on the planet typically has these kimberlite pipes because obviously there it was formed hundreds of millions of years ago. Yeah. And so that's why you find it out in the barren desert, the middle of Australia, yeah. Africa, up in Canada, Russia. Yeah. It's the yeah. oldest part of the earth. Really, these, it's it's really in the far northern hemisphere and the far southern hemisphere more so than in the middle, right? Yeah, I mean, and if you look at a place like the United States, there's not a lot of old earth here. We've got the Rocky Mountains going on, which has constant just the Appalachians. Yeah, and and there which are which is older, which is and there are diamonds, diamonds in Arkansas found in Arkansas. Yeah. So yeah, you kind of have to look at older places on the earth, typically places that don't have a lot of mountains. Because the mountains have been have worn been eroded, down, right. yep, and yeah, you'll, you might you might find a diamond. Go out there and prospect. <laughs> but okay, so diamonds have cubic crystal structure. The most common habit is octahedral or twinned octahedral, which is kind of like a flat triangle. They call it a mackle. 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 We like twinned. 
Sounds like crystals. a fish. Yeah. Mackerel. Uh, they have these cool little etchings on them called trigons. Super it's, cool. They are super cool. It's a triangular pattern that is naturally chemically etched onto a rough diamond surface. But it's only one face of the rough diamond. And this was the one question that I missed on the whole colored stone exam. Because it's not color. It's not color. I was like, why why, why are you asking me a diamond question right now? <coughs> but uh, I okay. still don't... I mean, I think I know the. I knew the answer right after I missed it because I looked it up, but I have since forgotten that. What face it... If, if anybody knows that, what face of the diamond rough tr- trigons grow on? Or they don't grow, but they're edged on. It's a specific It's a specific one. So, you know, DM us. Whatever. <laughs> color. Let's talk color because we do like color. Okay, so color, how color happens in diamonds. Now, we talked about those isometric bonds in carbon atoms, right? Right. And that arrangement is so rigid in the crystal structure that only if two trace elements can, quote unquote, contaminate it. And those two elements are boron and nitrogen. Right. And that's how you get green? No, boron gives you blue. Okay. Nitrogen gives you yellow or brown. And that is actually the most common trace element found in diamond. Um, There's two additional sources that can color a diamond. One is irradiation, natural or man-made, and it will give you a green color. Um, Irradiation is super hard to detect whether it is natural or man-made. Right. So labs can't even tell. So the only way to tell with a green diamond if it's naturally been irradiated or synthetically been irradiated is if you you have to trace it. You have to trace it from the ground. You have to blockchain it from the ground all the way through. Yeah. Um, And then the other source of color is a defect in crystal structure. Right. And that will often give you browns, your reds, and your pinks. So the thing that I find super... Orange. Yeah. Right. Orange. In there with the reds, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, The super cool thing is the order... From least to most rare. So right. we typically think colorless, right? No. That has to be the least the least rare. Well, it's that's not true. The least rare color of diamond is brown. Brown. Okay, so in order, from least to most rare, brown. So I think uh, yeah. champagne, chocolate diamonds. Yellow. Yellow. Colorless. Colorless. Blue, and then green, and then pink, and then orange. And then purple. Purple. Red. And then red. red. Red is the most rare color of diamond. And that's because it's a defect in crystal structure. And Doesn't happen we all know often. that is almost a perfect, I mean, that is a super strong crystal structure. So to right. get that defect is crazy rare. Cool. So black diamonds. We didn't talk about those. What, what makes up a black diamond? Because you're seeing a lot more black diamonds on the market now. Right. Which I don't really understand because because really black diamonds in the past have always just been you know turned into commercial abrasives. So because the whole idea of a diamond is that it sparkles, and with black they're so full of internal characteristics or inclusions that you don't get any sparkle and they look black. Yeah, the the one thing they have going for them is the luster of a diamond. So you have that and hardness and hardness. You, you have, have hardness that- and luster, but you do have to be a little bit careful with black diamonds that any of those inclusions or anything like that, that they're not breaking the surface, especially of the table, because then if you smack it, you know, you expect your diamond to last forever. 
Those inclusions are often weak spots. Yeah, they could be weak spots. And so black diamonds definitely have a higher chance and a lower dur- durability than yeah. your colorless. Yeah. Let's <clears throat> talk about the four C's. Okay. What, what are the four C's? If we're talking clarity here, let's well, go. They were originally created um, by GIA in 1953. GIA. And it's uh, carrot, cut, color, and clarity. So clarity... They assess the number, size, relief, and position of the inclusions and give it a clarity grade. Right. Anywhere from flawless. Right. Internally flawless. To I1. Two, three. I3. I3. Yeah. And so that just is basically how much gunk it's got going on. How much junk it's got in the trunk. Junk in the trunk. Or how many souvenirs from the Earth's crust. There you go. Much nicer. A way to romance them. (sighs) Color. Um, the color range is D to Z. D is colorless. Right. Z is yellow. Yellow. And then you have fancy on top of that. Yeah. So basically you go down the grade and really it is only a slight difference. Oh, it's so slight. It is so slight. And it is so slight that when Jonathan and I were doing our diamond course in New York, they told us not to drink. Yeah, because if you drink the night before, yeah, don't drink the night before your diamond. It can actually, it can actually throw off your eyesight that you have a hard time telling the different colors apart. Yeah, the the subtle differences in yellow to colorless. When you look at like D E F, they're really close together, and then you have like G H I and then J K L. So they kind of split them into three tiered segments and yeah. so it's really easy to tell the difference between like a d and a g yeah but between a d and an e is much is much more care much more difficult even between a d and an f can be difficult yeah so but once you get to a g you know it's it's, it's a easier. easier to see yeah. and how they actually look at color you don't look at it from face up because you can get thrown off by the dispersion because you get high dispersion. That and that's sparkle. what we call the fire or mm-hmm. the fire of the diamonds. And so that color can throw off your eyes. So you actually turn the diamond upside down mm-hmm. and you grade them upside down. Yeah. Through kind of at an angle. Through kind of an side. angle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the next C is cut. And that basically is judging the proportions, symmetry, and polish. And, really and also what, what cut it has because yeah. there's a million different kinds of cuts. And then there's also... The quality of the cut. Right. So you're just basically judging how the diamond facets interact with light. Right. Because you want to see a ton of light dispersion, as a much, ton of sparkle. As much sparkle as you possibly can so the light bounces and as much as possible you want as much to come back to your eye yeah. as possible. You don't want any light leakage. No leakage. And then the last one is carrot weight. And that's just the weight. That's the weight. So Not basic- to be confused with size. No. And this is something that's kind of confusing is sometimes you look at a one carat stone and a one carat stone and, you know, you look at three different one carat stones and you're like, well, they don't look the same size. And that has to do with the cut Yeah, is that don't always think because you're getting a one carat size, a one carat diamond that it's going to look the same as someone else's one carat diamond. So that's why it's really important to look at multiple diamonds and be able to see them and not to buy a diamond from a piece of paper. Yeah. I mean, and, and really carat weight. It's with all the other C's being equal, like clarity, color, cut. All those have to be equal. The larger diamonds are going to be worth more. Right. So right. Rare, the bigger it is, the more expensive thing. it is. If ever, if the all the other factors are the same. Yeah. All right. So we've kind of summed up. We've done a super quick diamond lesson there. 
yeah. for everyone. But I think before we go, we would be remiss not to talk about the current diamond market, right? Which is really the whole discussion between synthetic diamonds and natural diamonds, right? So we said there's about in 2017 there was about 151 million carats of diamonds produced. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a lot of production. A lot of natural diamonds. A, a lot of natural diamond production. But they are saying that that amount is probably going to come down because they went through a lot of old tailings and mm-hmm. a lot of old stuff. And so there was also some big finds. They're saying that's probably going to the peak of natural production. Uh-huh. Um, and then one of the things that I found that was interesting is, do you know who cuts the most, where the most rough diamonds are processed? India. India, right. Yeah. But do you know what percent? 80%. Over 90% wow. by value. Not even by not even by quantity, volume. not even by volume. I think volume is actually even higher than that. Mm-hmm. But by by actual value, over 90% of diamonds are cut in India. Wow. Which is pretty which is pretty amazing that one place holds the the place where diamonds were first found is still like, I mean, really big in the diamond. Really business. big in the diamond business, which I, I you don't see that that often no. as technology and things change. You'd expect it to to change, but no, it's still it's still India that cuts you know more than ninety percent. So let's talk about the introduction of synthetic diamonds into the into the market. Really, so the first success successful diamond was produced in 1954 by a man named Tracy Hall, and he worked with uh, GE for yeah, General Electric. GE Diamond Project. Right. And they were able to successfully produce them and replicate that procedure, but they were too small. I'm the, the size. 0.15 of a millimeter was the largest one they produced at that point. Yeah. And they were kind of ugly. They were super included. Yeah. Black, brown. Brown. Black, yeah. Um, and so they were mostly used for commercial abrasives. And then starting about the 1980s, there was a huge increase in um, worldwide research to develop synthetic, better synthetic diamonds. So that's where you see the introduction of two different um, synthetic diamond creation or processes. Right. Uh, CVD diamonds, which stands for chemical vapor deposition. And then HPHT diamonds, which is high pressure, high temperature. And so they use two different methods to create synthetic diamonds. And I would say over the last, I've been in the industry for like 10 years now. And when I joined the industry, synthetic diamonds were yellow because it was hard to get the nitrogen out of them because we're making them above ground. And expensive. and, And very expensive. Yeah. So in 2008... The cost to produce a finished diamond, just the cost to produce, was around $4,000 per carat in 2008. That's higher than natural or, you know, mined. Yeah, much higher. And what's interesting is is since then, um, the as of 2017, I don't have numbers for 2018, but as of 2017, the production cost of CVD diamonds – is somewhere in the 300 to 500 per carat. Yeah. And that is rough, pre-cut, yeah. all that other and, kind of stuff. Right. And well, and that's that's produ- that's just production cost. And the other thing about that is is it's it's mostly melly, which is 0.18 of a carat and smaller. Yeah. 
So that's the majority of it is very small. So even your, you know, your one carat synthetics are still quite rare. And of course, you're not going to find them for much, you know, you're not going to find them for three to 500 a carat. No. Because that's simply production cost. Yeah. That, that doesn't count cutting. That doesn't count, you know. Well, I think it was last year that you were buying a synthetic diamond for probably 30% below what you were buying uh, right. natural stone for. Right. Right. And so estimated production in um, 2017 was around 2 million carats. And they're saying that by 2030, they're estimating it'll be between 10 and 17 million carats per year. Yeah. But still, we're mining 150 million carats yeah. out of the ground. Yeah. So why? Why is this happening? Well, there's increased... Several reasons. Yeah, there's increased consumer demand for it. Right. People are asking for it. For less expensive, especially. Yeah. And also consumer demand from, you know, there's been some bad press about how diamonds are made and environmentally and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's where you got to be a little bit careful. Right. Because not all synthetic diamonds are produced by companies that... Care about the environment. Right. <laughs> right. You've got some really good ones, especially here in the U.S., that are using like... Renewable energy. A hundred percent renewable energy to produce their diamonds. Because yeah. it does take a lot of energy. These processes, both um, CBD and HPHT, take a ton of energy. Yeah. But you have... And so both sides, you've got mined diamond people over here saying... They're, they still use a lot of resources, and you have your synthetic diamond people over here saying they're better for the environment. Right. So you really have to be careful, and if you are in the market for a synthetic diamond for responsible sourcing, those kind of things, sure. you need to really look at the company that you're buying your synthetic diamond from because there's many factories overseas that are using coal, Yep. everything to produce their synthetic diamonds which is actually harder on the environment than a lot of mining. your current um your current mining like if you look at some of the canadian diamond miners they're much more you know they're very careful about how they disrupt the, the earth impact the environment and reclamation and how they pay their people and so you got to look at both not only look at where your synthetic diamond comes from look where your natural diamond yeah, comes from yeah not all diamonds are created equal and and if and if responsible sourcing and ethical sourcing is super important to you then you need to just do your research do your research a little bit yep so thanks for hanging in there for this longer Gem Junkies episode. We knew diamonds was going to be a difficult beast to tackle, and we didn't yeah. by any means tackle it all. No, because we still didn't get into Different. buying and what to look for and yeah. all that kind of stuff, which would be kind of fun. So maybe we'll do that on another episode. Yeah, so we'll do that maybe, a, I mean, it's engagement season. So maybe we'll <gasps> engagement do season. an engagement ring kind of buying guide. That well, would be, be kind of fun. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, if you have questions or you're in the market for an engagement ring and you have questions that you want us to answer, we are planning kind of to do a engagement ring buying uh, guide. And so if you do have any questions or any specific topics you want us to hit or anything like that, feel free to uh, either DM us at Parlay Gems. Yep. On Instagram or DM us on Facebook. Or you can email us at gemjunkies at parlaygems.com. Yep. That'll work. Uh, so, again, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Gem Junkies. I'm Brecken. And I'm Jonathan. And if you want to see what we do in our real life, you can always follow us at Parley Gems on Instagram or Facebook. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye bye. Bye-bye.